Well, last week we briefly introduced the topic of God. We're starting a series on the being of God, the attributes of God. So today, this morning, last week was an introductory lesson. Uh, Today we start the adventure, and it is an adventure, of groping after the knowledge of this one. Right? For such knowledge is, we just heard this in the gospel, right, is eternal life. So knowing God actually is what eternal life subsists in. It's not a means to eternal life, but it is eternal life. Which means, of course, that eternal life on some level is cognitive, knowing God. It has a profoundly intellectual component. This is the end, and this is the goal of our existence. And thus, knowing the triune God is to be the singular overriding pursuit of our lives. You always want to be moving in the direction of the end. And this is a pursuit that is full, hopefully we'll see this as this series unfolds, it is full of twists and turns, joys and delights, shocks, shocks and surprises. When you pursue the knowledge of God, You'll have desire fulfilled and yet still deferred. Small bits of knowledge will be gained and oceans of ignorance will be uncovered. You enter into these dark, unfathomable depths and brilliant, unapproachable light. So some of this in this series we are embarking on, I forewarn you, it's difficult. Some of it will hurt your head. Some of it, you will think, is just flat wrong. That can't be right. Some of it will seem crazy and impossible. Some of it you might even be angry about. For this God, our God, is anything but boring and tame and predictable. Now, I've said it before, but I will say it again. I contend that there is nothing wilder, nothing more mysterious, nothing more interesting, nothing more stimulating, nothing more challenging, nothing more frustrating of our idolatrous, that is, our natural modes of thought, nothing stranger, and in many ways, nothing more counterintuitive than the Christian God. I am always amazed that people look to some, either some Eastern religion or some other religion because it's exotic. And straight. I'm like, look, we, we have three persons that interpenetrate each other and dwell inside of each other in our God. All other conceptions of God are extraordinarily boring. There's nothing more difficult, more strange, more wonderful, but also counterintuitive. Let me tell you something about the Christian God. If you trust your gut, you're going to get a lot of stuff wrong here. So today, I want to start with uh, two scriptural assertions, which will be the two points of the sermon. They're there on the outline. God is incomparable. And following from this, God is incomprehensible. Incomparable and incomprehensible. Part of what we want to do is we want to clean these words off. 
So first then incomparable, and we can see what we are getting at here by taking the word apart. Incomparable, the meaning is not able to be compared or not fit for comparisons. And this is an assertion that's made repeatedly in Scripture, often by the mouth of God himself. So listen to God again from that great 40th chapter in Isaiah. In this chapter, J. Gresham Machen says, quote, The prophet celebrates, especially here, the awful transcendence of God and the awful separateness of God in the world. So here, transcendence and separateness are basically synonymous with what I mean when we say we call God incomparable. So Isaiah 40, verse 18, says this, To whom then will you liken me? Right? Liken is a, a comparison word. Right? To whom then will you liken me? Or with what likeness compare me? To whom will you compare me? Paul says in Acts 17, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold, or like silver, or like stone, or like an image formed by the art or the imagination of man. We, we do this all the time. Paul says we ought not to do that. So I, Isaiah 40 again, this time verse 25. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Isaiah 46. To whom will you liken me? And make me equal and compare me that we might be alike. Right? It's as if God actually dares us. Like, I dare you to compare me to something else, to anything else. And the reason for this, the reason for this is not merely that God would win the comparison. Right? It's not like he's saying, bring, bring on all the comparisons, I'll win them. Right, that he would be better or greater or higher than any other being or thing. The reason is, and please get this, the reason is that God is incomparable. Right? And we are using the word here in a way that does not mean really, really great or outstanding or the best in his field. The way you might say this music is incomparable. Or Michael Jordan is incomparable. Here, incomparable means something else. It means unable to be compared to anything else. There's something lawless about a comparison. Unable to be rightly compared to anything else. Unfit to be a term in a comparison. God is not comparable to any being or anything. Right? We've just cleared away all the religions of the world right there. God is not comparable to any being or anything. So I want to tease this out for a minute. And we're going to start very basically here. What does it mean to compare two things? Right? For the comparison to be meaningful, the two things have to share something in common. So even though we have a saying, you should not compare apples and oranges... They can, in fact, be compared for lots of reasons. For one thing, they're both things. They're both creatures. They're both beings. They're both fruits. They're both subject to decay. 
They both can be used in a fruit salad. So I'm told. Now, in other words, now if you're a biologist, let's say, or a philosopher, or you just took biology in high school, right? Or maybe you took a philosophy course somewhere. But if you took biology, you'll know this. You'll remember this. You'll remember this language. Apples and oranges are in the same genus, right? A genus is a higher-level category under which we can arrange lower-level categories. The lower-level categories are called species. This is 10th grade biology, right? And they're, they're grouped together in a higher level category called the genus, right? So if the genus is fruit, apples are one species, oranges are another species. They share a genus, therefore it's fitting to compare them. Got it? They share a genus, therefore you can compare them. You can even compare things that are very different as well. You can compare ants and angels. They're very different. But they share a genus. They're both creatures. They share another genus. They're both sentient beings. They're living things which have some kind of awareness. So they can be compared. But God is incomparable, right? And this means God is qualitatively different from all other beings, all other things. Not quantitatively different. Right? God is not what you would get if you took an angel or a man and made them bigger and better and smarter and more powerful. If you took created attributes and just amped them up. For instance, if you took human goodness and you made it really, 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 really super good. Right? God is not merely a much bigger, better version of human beings or qualities. Now, to get at this, historically, the church has used the word eminence or super eminence of God's qualities. Things or qualities like goodness exist in God, but they exist in God in this higher, purer, limitless, categorically different way than they do in creatures. And that's critical to get. Things exist in God in a categorically different, limitless way than they do in creatures. This makes thinking about God properly an ascetic kind of enterprise, right? I mean, an enterprise which requires cleansing and purification and repentance. Now, there is a kind of likeness between God and creatures. Not because they're in the same category, but because the effects, the creatures, show something of the cause in them. Otherwise, we couldn't know anything about God at all. The real wonder is that we know anything at all about this God. Now, we'll return to this, but for now, we must grasp that God is in no way a creature writ large or amplified. There is no likeness between God and creatures, even though we are made in his likeness. We are like him. He is not like us. Right? A statue is like the man who made it, but the man is not like the statue. We are like God. God is not like us. Right? If, you, if, you're, if you're thought, our, our natural mind does something like this. It says, well, we're made in God's image, so he must in some way image us. That's idolatry. Right? Our, our, we are just naturally inclined to take God and human beings and do this with them. And just sort of keep them in the same arena. 
Nor is it true that God is the best in a class of beings or the best in the class of gods. Like there's a category called the gods of the various world religions and our God is the greatest of all those gods. Right? That is pure nonsense. There is no category. There is no genus which God shares with any creature. Not even the category of thing or of being, or existence, God is not in any genus. Again, there is no category in which God and creatures are enveloped and embraced. Not even the category of all beings. You might think, well, surely we're beings and he's a being. That must be a category that embraces us and God. That, by the way, is also a form of cognitive idolatry. God utterly transcends all that exists. He is not a being as we are beings. He is being itself. He is isness. I am who I am. He's the uncreated source of all created being. And thus he is qualitatively, metaphysically different than every other thing. He does not exist alongside the world or as a complement to the world. He's radically other. He's not different in degree. He's different in kind. And our failure to grasp this is a kind of perpetual cognitive idolatry. Another way to put this is to say God is singular. He's unique. He's infinitely transcendent. He's infinitely above even our most basic categories, even our concepts. Above all things visible and invisible. Here's Isaiah 55, well-known passage, but let me just read a bit of it. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Again, in here, God is not saying, hey, I'm a lot smarter than you. Much, much smarter. As the heavens are higher than the earth is an idiom, which means not a lot different, but infinitely different, radically different. God thinks and lives in ways which are infinitely different than us and which belong to him alone. And even saying, I'll show you how easy it is to get caught in this web, even saying that God is in a different category than us is problematic, as if there was a concept called categories and God was a member of one category and we're members of another category. Do you see how corrupt our speech is? Our speech about God is deeply corrupt. Luther said to Erasmus in the middle of a debate in the 16th century, your talk about God is too human. It's incorrect to even say God is in another category. God simply is his own unique transcendent category which creates all other kinds of categories. He's the source of all created categories. And as such, the incomparable God transcends our knowledge. He'd be utterly unknowable to us apart from the fact that he stoops down and chooses to make himself known, first in creation and secondly in Jesus Christ. God is incomparable. Incomparable does not mean really great. And this brings us to the second point. God is incomprehensible. God dwells, our New Testament lesson from 1 Timothy 6 says, in unapproachable light. 
What a word. Unapproachable. I mean, and by the way, this is the New Testament God. I mean, we say maybe the Old Testament God dwells in unapproachable light. But God has drawn near to us in Jesus, and certainly we can't speak this way about God in the New Covenant. Well, just, you can check me on this. First Timothy's in the New Testament, right? The New Testament God dwells in unapproachable light. And this should induce humility, dread, right? Deep caution, <laughs> Before we pontificate about God, this is so different from the cat. I mean, this is just an unmarketing friendly word, right? The God of unapproachable light, right? So different than the casual, user friendly, super approachable God so popular these days. God is just super approachable, unapproachable light, Paul says. So forbidding, so prohibitive is this light that Paul goes on to say quite provocatively of this God that no one has ever seen him and no one can ever see him. No man, God tells Moses, no man sees my face and lives. He dwells, as the hymn put it, in light inaccessible. Hid from our eyes. And that's frustrating for us. We'd rather manage him. The Almighty, Job says, the Almighty, we cannot find him. So not only is our God incomparable, he is incomprehensible. Now, this does not mean, of course, that God is unintelligible or that he's incoherent. Again, we're not using incomprehensible in that sense. Because God is light, and in him there's no darkness, no dissonance at all. He is, in one sense, pure intellect, pure disembodied intellect. In fact, the very radiance, right, this is paradoxical to us, the very splendor of God's light, his being, his majesty, his glory, this is what makes him unapproachable. You'll see this in our closing hymn, which puts it with great insight. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. You would think, well, if God is light, then he'd be visible and accessible. And he would enable us to see. But God is so replete with intelligible light that to us, he becomes an unapproachable dark mystery. And the fact that we can't really quite make this paradoxical connection in our minds is is a sign that we're bent here. A careful reading of the Psalms would show God is both clothed with light and covered in clouds of thick darkness. And the two belong together. So, when we say God's incomprehensible, what we mean here is that while God is comprehensible on some level, he's not fully so. And even this is dangerous to say. The point is not, okay, God is like a ton of information, and we can only grasp 14% of it. And the other 86% of it is beyond us. That's not right. Even in grasping God, there remains an infinite ocean that is ungrasped. And what we know 
We know in an infinite cloud of unknowing. This is traditional language from the history of theology, by the way. What we know, as finite creatures, we know in an infinite cloud of unknowing. Even after Christ appears to show us the face of the Father, we are told we still see through a glass darkly. Everything we know is kind of shadowy and incomplete and partial. In the same way, then, Scripture speaks of God as being unsearchable, right? Job says God does great things, unsearchable things. And it asks, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is only, only the outskirts or the fringes of God's ways that we grasp. This is one of the most forgotten truths in Christendom. Because we just tend to default to a position that says, well, yeah, I mean, there's a few things in Christianity that are beyond me. But I've got about 92% of it. It's just the fringes. Right? To turn our hearts and minds to this God is to be blinded by his light and to then launch out into these unfathomable depths. Again, Isaiah 40 which if you do nothing in this series but read that chapter, it will have been worth it, I think. There the prophet says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable, meaning unfathomable, unable to be plumbed. Psalm 147 says the same thing as understanding is beyond measure. Psalm 145 says his greatness is unsearchable. I mean, think about that. Greatness is not really an attribute. It's kind of like a meta-attribute. Greatness embraces all of God's godness. And in his greatness, he is unsearchable. There's not a part of God that's unsearchable. In all that he is and does, he's the unsearchable, unfathomable one. Now, I want to pause, make a few things clear. We should not think that we're left with no ability to know or grasp God. But by the way, until you've been brought to that point where you think, well, then how could we know anything? Right? Then that means we haven't been thinking of God properly. That's a question that every Christian should be asking themselves. How is it that we know anything about this being? We can know things about God because he's made himself known. If he hadn't made himself known, we wouldn't know that he's incomprehensible. Right? Everything we say today, we say precisely because God has made himself known. He's made himself known as the unknowable one. We can even reason about God from the created order, as I said, because he's the creator and we are the effects. We are creatures made in his image. So get this. This is part of the paradox that I'm trying to like, stimulate us with today. God, the God who says repeatedly, don't compare me to anything. Don't liken me to anything. Who would you dare to compare me with? That, you know what that God says? I'm like a rock. Right? So we can say God is like a rock because God says he's like a rock. But it's not because it's a really an apt comparison. God and rocks are not in the same genus. It's a fundamentally improper comparison. There's an infinite distance. But rocks have this property of being strong and God is faithful. So to use technical language, there's an analogy of sorts, a point that's like between a rock and God. 
There's some likeness between the effect and the cause. So we can talk about God. But we're always doing it, by the way, from creaturely realities, from effects back to God. Right? Even the word God is a creaturely reality. It's distilled from languages, right? Hebrew. It's, it's an earthly, creaturely thing. There's no way to get to God except through the created order back. But still, God is infinitely different than rocks. And any similarity that you might discern between God and a rock or God and a flower is set against this infinite dissimilarity. Again, we know in an infinite cloud of unknowing. And forgetting this, beloved, will shrink your conception of God. It will flatten it out until God seems like a big, really big super creature. On top of that, it will make us arrogant. Because in our knowing, we lose sight of this. But there's more. Even in what we do know... We always know it as creatures. We do not know God as God knows himself. Jesus says no one knows the Father except the Son. He can reveal the Father to us, but the Son and the Father have a unique knowing relationship. Paul says the same thing of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 2. No one knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of the person that's in them. So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we know, we know as creatures. We do not know the way God knows. Now, I always get pushback on this. I can remember teaching a couple Sunday school classes here where I I said, we we don't know that two plus two is four in the same way God knows that two plus two is four. And usually people push back on this. They're like, oh, no, surely, surely... We know that exactly. No. Right? It's the fact that God knows it, that it is four. Like God's knowledge makes two plus two four. Our knowledge discovers that two plus two is four. God does not know things. Not a single thing. Not a rose. Not a mathematical concept. There's not a single thing that God knows the way you know it. God knows all things by consulting his own being from all eternity before they exist. God's knowledge is the reason things are. God's knowledge actually constitutes the thing. God's knowledge is infallible and determinative. Right? We look at it and say, oh, yeah, there's a rose outside. I know there's a rose. Well, it's it's winter, but you know what I mean. There's no But, you know, there's snow outside. But from all eternity, God's knowledge, consulting his own being, is what determines creates and determines that there will be snow outside on this day. So it's really important to get to. We do not know things the way God... Because, we, we, again, we default to thinking, well, I know this, and so I've got some sort of godlike knowledge. So, now, of course, since God has taken up our flesh in Jesus Christ... We can see him and know him in new and more intimate and easily accessible ways. But none of that, right? None of that, as glorious as it is, none of it changes the fact that God is incomparable and he's incomprehensible. We still see through a glass darkly. Now, you can see more and you can see a little better, but you're still seeing through a glass darkly. So, three practical takeaways from this. You might think, well, this isn't very practical. Actually, it's very practical. Right? Here's the first one. Humility. 
Our thoughts of God are often too human and too base. We think we have him basically wired or figured out, and we don't. We just don't. If you just listen to us, going on and on, certain about this and certain about that, we think knowing God is just like knowing another person. People talk like this all the time. I'm going to sit down and have my tea with Jesus. Well, tell me what he takes in his. Because he's not a person, right? The, father, like the, the divine persons are not persons like you're a person. That's, this is another sermon. But that is deeply humanizing the person. God is three persons. The persons are not persons like you and I are persons. But we'll talk about that another day. Knowing God is not like knowing another person. This should be quite liberating to you because I'm sure you've experienced this. It can be frustrating to know God. He doesn't talk back. He doesn't show up. It's a different kind of relationship. You know him indirectly through word and sacrament and prayer, through the Holy Spirit. So we need deep intellectual chastening. We need to confess that our minds are perpetual idol factories. We're used to thinking about idols in our hearts, but we, our mind creates idols. Again, what Luther said to Erasmus in the 16th century applies to us today. Your thoughts of God are too human. It takes real labor. It takes deep, demanding work to think properly about the Christian God. I'm not sure we believe that. And, it's, and many, I will say this, many never actually start the process throughout their whole life. It requires perpetual cognitive repentance and humility. For there is something unnatural and non-instinctive about knowing God. This is one thing I want to get across to you today. There is something indeed unnatural about this and non-instinctive about knowing God this way. And we are nothing, as I said earlier, we are nothing if not people who tend to trust our instincts. We tend to trust our instincts on this stuff. Well, I think God must, if if God is this, then... But we haven't even done the very beginning kinds of things that need to be done. And so Christians regularly, we walk around, you know, perpetually with these low, distorted, base, ignoble, erroneous, and in many cases, absolutely heretical conceptions of the triune God and the mystery of Christ. Because our reason is defiled, and it's still in the process of being healed. And since we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our minds, all of our minds... To think wrongly about God, J.I. Packer said this years ago, to think incorrectly about God is sinful, but it's one of the great acceptable sins in our circles. Nobody repents publicly because they had a base or low conception of the Trinity. To think incorrectly about God is sinful, but it is one of the great acceptable sins. What we need is repentant reason. This is a beautiful thing, right? Repentance is a beautiful thing. We need repentant reasons because we are conceptually, get this, conceptually defiled. We are conceptually bent toward idolatry, toward shrinking this God down. And seeing this God should induce deep, 
rational brokenness and dependence and humility. So that's the first great lesson of understanding the incomparability and the incomprehensibility of the Christian God is a deep, repentant humility. The second thing is comfort. Right? The incomparable God, unsearchable in his greatness, is your God. He may, and in fact he does, in many ways, elude our grasp. But here's the good news. We do not elude his grasp. And that's the important thing. Right? This one is unrivaled, and thus he can keep and guard all that you entrust to him. I suggest to you that you cannot have true and lasting comfort from gods made in your own image. And most gods, including most Christian manufactured gods, are made in our image. This God, the only God, is our only comfort in life and in death because he will not leave us in our darkness, either our moral darkness or our intellectual darkness. Third and last application here, worship. No one should be disheartened by any of this, although you know, a certain amount of being disheartened in the pursuit of the knowledge of God is, is probably necessary. But we shouldn't long-term be disheartened. Because the fact that God is incomparable, that he's incomprehensible, is intrinsic to his glory. He is ineffably sublime, as another hymn puts it. And that is what's crucial to making him worthy of worship, of the highest praise. But a tame and and a a tepid vision of God leads to tame and tepid praise. But a tame and tepid vision of God will give you tame and tepid praise. A human, sentimental vision of God leads to human, sentimental praise. Only this God, the incomparable biblical God. Right? That's why we come here every Lord's Day, right? You brave the cold, you brave the weather, you come here to worship because this God is incomparable. And he's worthy of perpetual, full-throated, high praise from every burning creature in heaven and every creature on earth and every creature under the earth forever. Of him we confess with joy the great Pauline doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, Paul says. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. There's an inscrutability about this God. We don't like inscrutability. How unsearchable, how inscrutable, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid, Paul says. For from him and through him and unto him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.